You are listening to audio from Redeemer Church in Odessa, Texas. You can connect with us online by visiting RedeemerChurchOdessa.org. Good morning. My name is Erin, and I'm part of the McLean Community Group. Our scripture passage this morning is from Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. If you have an electronic device, we use the English Standard Version. Galatians chapter 3, verses 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now the faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for coming to reinforce. Uh, I'm so glad to have Graves here singing with us this morning. Um, he stepped in and helped us out, and I'm really glad that he and his sweet family are here. We've known them for a long time. Um, it makes my heart very happy. Um, I want to start this morning, before we even dive in, I really want to stop and pray for Tanner, and his, he's on his way to Dripping Springs, Redeemer Dripping Springs. He's going to preach at their evening service they have there. So let's stop real quick. It seems a little hot back there, or at least I'm getting some feedback. Um, Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for this church you've given us. We thank you for Tanner and how he leads us, and I pray that you would just give him a safe trip to Dripping Springs. I pray that you would just bless him and bless that church this evening. I pray that you would just grow that church mightily and that they would just give you all the glory, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So my name is Matt. Uh, I'm one of the the pastors here, and uh, so glad that you guys are with us this morning. We're going to be continuing our walk through Galatians. Uh, before we dive into that, if you're new here, there are some connect cards underneath your chairs. Uh, we'd love for you to fill that out so we could get to know you, reach out to you, maybe uh, get you some coffee, talk to you. Uh, if you have prayer requests, feel free to use that as well. Uh, another thing I want to shout out is we are trying to move into the 21st century, so we have an app. If you don't have it, you can get on the App Store or whatever device you're using and download that. My favorite part about it, though, is the Sunday mornings tab, because we've got, you click on it, there's like a little Bible icon, you can click on that, and it takes you to the scripture that we're reading for today, 
It's got sermon notes on there. It's got a playlist for like our worship songs, so you can kind of be listening to those with your family and stuff throughout the week and kind of really be able to sit in some of those songs so you can sing loud whenever we get here on Sunday. Uh, so as we get going, it's such an honor, and it's also really humbling to be up here speaking with you guys today. Uh, I really want to do these texts honor, and I want to glorify the Lord with them. Uh, they're so full of rich and weighty imagery. Uh, as we're going to look at, there's so much beautiful imagery that Paul weaves into this, and they're so very important for our walk as Christians in this new life that we've been given us, and why this freedom that we have is so important. Uh, they're beautiful in both their clarity and their symbolism. As we've been walking through Galatians since the start of the year, we've seen that Paul is actually writing to this church that he helped establish during one of his missionary journeys. And this church started off so well, right? They're living in this freedom that Christ crucified has offered them. And it's like he leaves, and then they immediately start falling prey to false doctrine and false teaching. Um, there's a group of troublemakers coming in to steal this joy and this freedom by insisting that in order to be truly saved, you had to have Christ plus hold true to these ancient Jewish customs, be it circumcision or something else, right? And so they were robbing these, these Galatians of this freedom offered by Christ. This group was called, they were called uh, the Judaizers. I might be pronouncing that wrong, but I'm going with it. They were essentially stating that the law must be followed along with Christ in order to be truly saved and to have this salvation. So Paul was like this father that sees his children playing in the street and he's furious, right? And so what he wants to do now is give them a lesson in, in apologetics. So apologetics, if, if Devontae is here, he might give me an A. <clears throat> what apologetics is, is basically having sound reasoning for your faith, okay? So he wants to give the, this young church a reason for their faith, a systematic defense for this freedom they have. Let's pray, and then we're going to dive into Galatians in chapter 3. Lord, I pray that you would just move through this uh, sermon today. I pray that you would just be speaking your truth. I pray that I would honor your text, Lord. <clears throat> I pray that you would be glorified. I do pray that we would find freedom. I pray that we'd be able to rejoice in the work that was done on our behalf and that we would be able to just sit and rest and glorify you, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So starting in verse 15, Paul says, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings with an S, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. So last week told us that Abraham, who was the father of the Israelites, was made righteous because of his faith. Was Abraham a perfect man? Absolutely not, okay? Like Tanner said, he was a liar. He was a coward. But, though he may not be perfect, the God in whom he placed his faith is, okay? So back in Genesis, we're going to jump way back. So back in Genesis 15, God makes a covenant with Abraham. And a covenant 
was defined, especially in the Old Testament, as kind of like this greater party and this lesser party coming to this contract, this, this agreement, okay? So, sidestep. Covenants in Scripture really exhibit such beauty, and they really play to the overall story that we see of the Bible, okay? Um, we see, we can maybe think of some of the main covenants that some of us might know, be it, you know, the covenant to Abraham that we see today, or maybe the covenant to David and his everlasting kingdom, maybe the covenant to Moses and the law, right? Might even think about Jesus and the new covenant that he establishes, right? So all of these involve God, who would be the greater party, come together with the lesser party, okay? Be it us. Sidestep within a sidestep. So marriage, you, if you've ever been to like a marriage ceremony, they might say this is that you're entering into this covenant. The covenant is not necessarily between the man and the woman, right? They are now one flesh. It's between them and a holy God. They're coming together as one and saying that we are pursuing you together. Okay, sidestep back. Okay, reverse sidesteps. So Back in Genesis 15, this is one of my favorite little parts of Scripture, and it's really fairly short, but there's so much weight to it, and I love what we see here. So God tells Abraham that he wants to make this covenant with him, okay? And he promises land. He promises, you know, more descendants than you can count. He proclaimed that the descendant, the Messiah, would be coming from him, the offspring that we saw Paul reference, would be coming from that bloodline, from him. God would do all of this. And all Abraham had to do was live a holy and blameless life. Right? So these animals that God prescribed are split in half and their blood runs together. And like Tanner hit on last, last week, this was to symbolize that if I don't live up to my end of the covenant, you can do this to me. You can spill my blood. Okay? It gets even a little bit more graphic than that, but I'll spare you today. Okay? And so Genesis tells us that Abraham has these animals split, and then this deep and weighty darkness falls on him, this terrible dread. Okay. He knows how wicked he is. He knows how weak he is. He knows how cowardly he is. And all of this, all of his hopes, the descendants, the Messiah, the land, all of this rests on him being holy and blameless. As soon as he steps foot in that blood to pass through it to say, hey, this is my seal on it too. As soon as he does that, he knows he's done for, right? He's doomed. So he wakes up from like this, this darkness and he sees this flame and a smoke pot, okay? And both represent God. And as we'd see later on in Exodus, God leads his people through the wilderness, through the desert, using a tower of flame and a tower of smoke. So here we see God's presence show up. So the smoke pot passes through the blood. This is saying, God basically being, if I don't live up to my end, if I don't give you a Messiah, if I don't give you this land, and on and on, then you can do this to me. And now it's Abraham's turn. He would be the one to step through the blood next. But instead, we don't see that. We see the flame go through. It's giving me chills even just talking about this. I love it so much. Uh, and I don't want to sensationalize it, but it's so beautiful. So it's like 
God putting a hand in Abraham's chest. And he's like, if you can't live holy and blameless before me, you can spill my blood. He stops him. He goes through a second time. It's a covenant. Now, see, Paul is using these texts that these Judaizers would most likely know very well at this point, right? He's using the very text that their whole way of life is based upon to show them that they still don't get it. So these Judaizers are coming and they're pestering these Galatians and they're throwing all this Old Testament stuff at them, all this, this, this scripture. And so Paul's saying, you know what, I'm going to take this scripture that you're using and I'm going to show you something even more. I'm going to up the ante a little bit. And I love that. He's showing that they still don't get it. He's going to show that the very father of the Israelites, Abraham, that they revere so much, he himself rested in the promises of God and not in his own power. Now, even common people of this day would understand legal documents, right, like covenants. And that once a covenant was ratified, once it was enacted and put into motion, that it's not voided simply because there is a new covenant later on, okay? I really wanted to try and come up with and, and employ some fancy legal vernacular, like I was on some courtroom drama. I would just end up embarrassing myself, especially since there's lawyers here present. So I don't want to do that. But what he's doing here is he's employing a legal doctrine to highlight a spiritual reality. Paul is saying, well, you're relying on this covenant of the law to save you, right? Well, I'll show you an even older covenant that still stands, a covenant that has legal precedence, if you will, okay? So this promise of Abraham's seed in Genesis is talking about the seed, the offspring. And it harkens back, it pushes us back even to Genesis, okay? We see the same seed promised to Eve way back in the garden when God tells her that her descendant will have victory over Satan, the Christ. In the garden, after God tells Adam and Eve that things are not always going to be this way, that there would be a Messiah, there would be a Savior to come and make things right, he covers them with animal skins. This is to symbolize later on that God would again cover them, but not just in skins from some animal, but in the very righteousness of his own son. Paul is painting a beautiful picture to show how the entirety of Scripture is pointing to redemption at the cross. As God's own son would defeat sin for us. Picking back up in verse 17, it says, This is what I meant. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer becomes a promise, or it comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Abraham received the promise of the Messiah hundreds of years before the law. When I say the law, I'm meaning the Ten Commandments, okay? The covenant of the law given to Moses in the desert, think about like Charlton Heston, or if you're younger, maybe uh, Val Kilmer's Prince of Egypt, okay? This covenant was full of blessings for obedience and adherence to the laws, and then curses for the people should they not follow them, okay? Do it this way, 
and you'll be blessed. God will be with you. You'll be at peace, and no nation can lift a hand against you. You'll be bountiful. Things are going to go great for you for all time. If you choose not to, then you can expect war. The protection of the Lord of angel armies is going to depart from you. You'll be cursed coming. You're going to be cursed going. And it doesn't take very long to look through any history books or to spend like one minute on social media to see that we very much indeed chose the other way. We did not choose the law. We don't make God our God. We worship anything and everything, mostly ourselves. We covet things that aren't ours. We lust with our eyes. We kill others to get what we want. And where does that leave us? Last week, Tanner told us that anyone under the law is cursed. We are cursed. But like Abraham, we, as believers, we trust in the work of Christ. As believers in the promise, we have an inheritance that we can't even begin to fully comprehend. So is it the law? Or is it the promise? If it's the promise, if trusting in the work completed on our behalf by God himself saves us, then why do we even have this law in the first place, right? I really wanted to do like my best Stallone impersonation from like Judge Dredd. My wife's shaking her head. Uh, I didn't break the law. I am the law. Okay. Come on. 1995, baby. So would you believe that God made this promise and then centuries later, was like, oops, my bad. I didn't expect y'all to be a bunch of hoodlums, so I'm going to give you this law in order to make you right. No, God is unchanging, right? He's not caught off guard and now has to rethink his whole plan. That's not how it works. That's not who he is. Even Christ himself said that no part of the law would vanish before the coming of the new kingdom. So why then do we have this law? Looking in, starting in 19, you know, he's like, he's like so why do we even have it? And you can almost feel like these, these readers of this letter are probably starting to get really ramped up. Yeah, why do we even have this? This is about to get good. He goes on to say, it was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring... Christ, should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. It was added because we're transgressors. We're rebels. Does this mean that from Abraham to Moses, okay, everything was great, there was no issue between now and then? No sin, no death? No. Death came into the world in the garden. Okay. When Ab and Eve fell, there was sin even up to the giving of the Ten Commandments. The book of Romans, another of Paul's letters, tells us that sin came in through one man. And through sin, death, and then death spread like a virus. This sin existed before the law. But then later on in Romans, he says in verse 7, What shall we say? 
that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. The law highlights our transgressions. It highlights our wickedness. It highlights our needs, right? It's like looking into a mirror and realizing how filthy we are. The law is the very character and nature of God and whom we are to imitate, but we never can. The law has been from the beginning. Romans tells us that it was written into our very hearts. And it's also so beautiful when you look at like King David wrote about lying awake at night and thinking about the beauty of the law. The beauty of the law. Why? Because in its right place, the law shows us how good God is. And how much we need to rest on his promise. The law actually points us back to the covenant with Abraham. In Psalm 19, David paints a beautiful picture of this perfect balance that we see. He proclaims how beautiful and even sweet the commands of the Lord are, sweeter than even honey. They are true, and they even bring joy to our hearts. But how can the law bring joy? Don't do this, don't do that, right? Again, because it reflects the one who gave us the law. His very character and nature. We see him in the law. And then later on, David says, How can I even know the sins lurking within me? Keep me from these sins. Cleanse me. In this one psalm, we see David fully understands that the law reflects God's glory. And also realizing that the law shows how very much in need of help he is. We can't do this, God. We need you to do it for us. The law pointed to our need for the offspring of Abraham who would come, the one who has come. Again, it's pointing back to that covenant we see in Genesis. When God said, if you can't do this, you can spill my blood. And this law that we keep talking about was given by angels, we're told, by this third party. But who made the promise to Abraham? In verse 20, we see now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I kind of like how the NLT uh, reads. It says, now a mediator is helpful if more than one party must reach an agreement. But God, who is one, did not use a mediator when he gave his promise to Abraham. What we're saying here is that this intermediary, this mediator is nice because this person and this person has to come to an agreement, right? Think of the law, all right? You do this, and then you will get this, Right? They, there's, this, there's this interaction from all parties involved. But what do we see with the covenant with Abraham, with the promise with Abraham? It's only one party that's having to be active here. What we see is that when the law was given, it involved participation 
on the part of us as well. More than one party had to come to an agreement, but when law made the promise to Abraham, it was all on him. He didn't require active participation on Abraham's part. God would do the work of salvation. Abraham believed and then was counted righteous. People tend to think of God as having like these multiple personality issues. We have Old Testament God of flaming hailstones and plagues and law. Then we have this New Testament God full of mercy and grace. But it's such a false caricature. Friends, there's so much grace and mercy painted all over the Old Testament. The righteous living by faith alone is not just a New Testament idea in Galatians and Romans. It's in the very foundational start of the Bible and flows all the way to the cross. Remember what I said earlier about the promise made to Abraham about this seed and how that promise harkens all the way back to the garden? This covenantal promise of salvation has existed from the beginning and is the main story of Scripture. This God who would do the work to redeem his people through the cross and resurrection was the plan all along. It never depended upon you or me. That frees us up. So how then do we reconcile these two covenants? We have the promise, and then we have the law. They seem to be at odds. They seem to conflict each other. But if we pick back up in 321, we see how Paul is even ready. He's even thinking ahead to this argument as well. He says, is the law contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then the righteous, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Paul is emphatically stating that God isn't contradicting himself. The entire law really goes hand in hand with the promise made to Abraham because as we looked earlier, the law helps us to see God as who he really is and on the flip side of that, to see us as how we really are. Remember what we saw from David. He proclaimed the sweetness of the law because it reflected the glory of the Lord. But he also had this anguish because he knew his own shortcomings. He knew of his fallen nature. It's like he sees his own chains. Now, I love the Pilgrim's Progress. <laughs> there we go. I'm done. Okay. Uh, I love the Pilgrim's Progress. It's a, this really old story by a, a guy named John Bunyan. Uh, but it's about a character named Christian. And he's on this journey to the celestial city. And if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend it. Get the abridged version if you, if you can't do, like, the old English and, like, all that fun stuff. But there's even, like, an animated movie on Prime that's actually really good. I thought it was going to be super cheesy. It's not. Uh, but so this Christian, this man Christian, lived in the city of destruction. And he becomes so very burdened by this book of the law he had been reading. This burden became unbearable and all-consuming. So he actually, in the show and in the book, he has like a physical burden on him that continues to grow, right? It was the very weight of the knowledge of his own sin that was oppressing him. So he's told by evangelists how to get to this narrow gate that eventually takes him up a hillside 
And as he climbs this hill with this heavy burden on his back, he looks up to see a man on a cross. And in that moment, this burden falls off and rolls into an empty tomb. Faith in Christ means that the oppressive knowledge of our sin is no more. It turns to rejoicing. So is the law bad? No. When we see our wickedness for what it really is, then we can truly see God for how good and merciful and beautiful he is. Grace isn't amazing unless we really understand the depths of our own sin and wickedness. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. My two youngest girls are adopted. Uh, we were placed with Cannon, our four-year-old, in May of 2018. She was three weeks old when we got her. Um, and then we got to adopt her just shy of her one-year birthday. Her little sister Carly was the same thing. A couple of years later, October of 2020, we got a call. There's a baby. She's three weeks old at the hospital. We brought her home. And again, just shy of her first birthday, we got to adopt her and make her ours. But for the first 11 months of their lives, they were not truly ours. They were in our home. We were changing the diapers and all that fun stuff. But they were still under the guardianship of the state. They were technically still wards of the state. They were not ours. They were not ours until the covenant had been ratified and was official. Until the legal documents were signed and sealed by that judge. See, we too were once without a family. The Bible says that we were orphans. We were unloved. We were unwanted by those around us. Left our own devices, we were utter wretches. But God, in his mercy and grace, instituted a law to guide us back to him for our good. He gave us these boundaries. So imagine really quickly, I have a full house. But imagine really quickly how a group of two- and four-year-olds, how quickly that group deteriorates when there's no direction given. Okay? Now, let's zoom out and apply that to the entirety of the human population. It's scary. Imagine people drive like crazy here regardless, but imagine if there were no speed limit signs at all. Okay? Texas is one of the only places where people get mad that you're not speeding fast enough. Okay? He gave us these boundaries. He set these true and trustworthy commands over us until he would make us his forever. But who did the real work of salvation? Well, it wasn't us. Like adoption, okay? I love the doctrine of adoption. Uh, it hits on it later on in Galatians, but I'm going to work it in here because I don't get to preach next week. So, like adoption, we come as children who bring nothing to the table. My two girls brought nothing to us. They had nothing to give, right? The parents have to do all the work, all the sacrifice. The parents are the ones through 
blood, sweat, and tears. We're my foster families. Yeah, literal tears. Uh, they're the ones that do the work to bring that child into the home and say, you are mine. You are wanted and you are home. Those girls did nothing except be and then trust in the work that was done on their behalf. So how much more beautiful is the work done by God's own Son? Jesus, God as man, came into our brokenness. He knew our chains of sin and this guilt that oppressed us. He knew the weakness in our own hearts. He knew that we could never live up to the very law that he wrote. So he did it. He fulfilled that law perfectly. Where we falter, he did not. Where we give in to temptation, he stood firm. When we can't love the Lord with all our heart, he does. Like Abraham, we believe that he has accomplished the work for us. Think about that. We have the book. We know how the story ends. Abraham didn't, yet he still looked forward to the day when God himself would make him righteous. It's that same belief that justifies us and allows the law to be beautiful before our eyes. It allows the law to be sweet because we are slaves to it no longer. No longer do we have to look, no longer do we have to work for God's approval. We already have it. As a Christian, you're in. Now through the power of Christ's Spirit in us, we can live the law in freedom of knowing that when I mess up, and I will, probably before I even leave this building, I'm still covered by the blood of Christ. We can honor the Lord and glorify Him as a living sacrifice because He has paid our debt of salvation. Christian, rest in that completed work. I invite you, as Paul does, to bask in the freedom that is offered by God Himself. You have been forgiven. There's nothing else that you can add to it. If you aren't a believer, if you're here this morning but you're not a believer, I want you to understand that God planned to redeem lost people to himself. You are more lost than you would even know, than you could dare to imagine. We all were. But God is so rich in mercy that even when you had nothing to offer, he made you family by the work of his son paying the price for your rebellion. Believe as Abraham believed and be counted righteous. Let's pray.